Yeah, leadership is lauded, following is underrated, but following is exactly what God, if you're a Jesus follower, it's exactly what he has called you to do. Welcome to week two of this uh, series. I want to, before we dive into the content that I've prepped, I want to take just a minute if I can and celebrate the truth that our church, this assembly of the saints, is leading and following with generosity. And I, I, this has just blown me away. I literally have been so excited to share this with you. The last two weeks, I've just been, this is so cool. I can't wait for our church to hear this. Perhaps you remember, if you are a venture regular attender, uh, early, uh, or, well, late in the year, actually, in October, beginning of November, we did a series um, here at Venture. We even handed out some books. Some of you grabbed one of those books. Uh, you know, we talked about too much, and the subtitle of the series was Living with Less in the Land of More. I shared in that series some scary numbers. Listen, every church in America has been looking closely at the bottom line this past year. All of my peers, I talked to pastors all over the country. This has been a thing. I mean, the news was scary. The news cycle was scary. We were thinking recession and all that. Giving, not-for-profits, we're looking pretty closely at that. I shared with you uh, late October that we were running behind on projected giving. We build a budget every year based on what we believe God is going to bless our church with. And we were running behind in projected giving. By the way, we were so kind of keeping our eye on that during that season of ministry, we actually built out a budget that you all approved for 2023. If you call Venture Home, if you're a member of our church, you voted for that budget. We actually reduced our budget by 5%. We built a budget for 2023 that's 95% of the budget we built for 2022. I shared with you some scary numbers a couple of months ago. I shared with you that we were... 91.4% of projected giving, running about 9% behind at that point. We were feeling a bit nervous as we were looking toward the year end. Can I share with you year-end giving where Venture Christian Church landed? This is so cool. I love this. Check this out. We ended the year at 104.8%. Yeah. Celebrate that. Yay, God. Our elder team gathered this past Wednesday night. We do that once a month anyway, but a good portion of our meeting we spent just saying thank you to God. We're grateful uh, that uh, God, grateful for his faithfulness. We're grateful for you and your faithfulness, your faithful giving. Thank you for your faithful giving. Thank you for your continued faithful giving. We ended our elder team meeting, or actually we, we took it, didn't end, but we, we spent some time right in the middle just praising God and praying a grateful prayer. I want to do that right now. And the phrase we kept throwing around was, we can't wait to see what God does with this, how God uses this to fuel future ministry. So could you join me right now where you're at? Would you mind just bowing your heads and closing your eyes? Would you join me in a prayer of gratefulness to our God? God, I thank you for faithful following that becomes faithful leading. Lord, I thank you for a generous church that is leading and following well through the lens of generosity. God, we can't wait to see what you do in us and through us even this coming year as we lean into the opportunities that you put in store for us today. It's in your name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
first follower. There's a, a book that was written, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe a little bit more than 20 years ago. How many of you have read the book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff? This is what it looks like. Let me see your hands. Millions of people read this book. I think across the globe, actually, it was translated in a whole bunch of languages. It was a New York Times bestseller, Times 10. Uh, it was a big deal. Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And I love the rest of that title. And it's all small stuff. Don't sweat all that stuff that you're all stressed about. Remember, it's kind of all small stuff. Simple ways to keep the little things from taking over your life is the subtitle. And in this book, Richard Carlson, the author, gives us some advice like this. Think of your problems as potential teachers. What can you learn from your problems? Remember that when you die, your inbox won't be empty. Some of us need that reminder, right? Me included. How about this one? Do one thing at a time. Don't sweat the small stuff. By the way, it's all small stuff. I love that title. I love the thought, but I've actually kind of taken a little different tact with this message. Because here's the thing. In the area of stress in your life, that cul-de-sac, or maybe better metaphor here would be the roundabout of your life, don't get stressed of all those things that tend to just overwhelm you. Don't stress those things. Don't sweat the small stuff there in areas of stress. But can I challenge you with this? In areas of character, you absolutely should sweat the small stuff. Character's a big deal. And it's revealed in the small things in life. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 16, verse 10, when he says, if you are faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones as well. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. Jesus says, hey, listen, sweat the small stuff. Remember, leadership is lauded. Following is underrated. But following is exactly what you were called to do, especially especially in the small stuff of life. It's the small moments where integrity is built. I would argue that it's in the small moments in life where integrity is sustained. And hear me clearly, oftentimes it's in those small moments in life where integrity actually gets ruined. Some of you, some of you today, that's worth the price of admission right there. Some of you, you needed to hear that. You needed to be reminded of that. That's something that you're leaning into even this week. The poet and the author, Annie Dillard, was right when she wrote this. She said, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Look at that. Reflect on that. Think about this next week in front of you, those small moments. How you spend your days is how you spend your lives. Those small moments that build our days total up to the sum total that becomes our lives. So today, I'm actually calling you to sweat the small stuff. And to do this, as we dive into the Bible together, I want to call you to a role model for us. The next several weeks, we're going to be looking at some of Jesus' first followers as we seek to be first followers ourselves. We're going to do a case study each week of those particular people. Today, we're looking at the sweaty apostle. 
Yeah, that's exactly what I said. The apostle of small things, his name is Andrew. And I wonder if you've ever really studied his life. I wonder if you've ever studied what the Bible has to teach us about Andrew. You see, because Jesus had a whole bunch of disciples, a whole bunch of followers. Then there were 12 that were kind of core, right? There were 12 core disciples. We know them also as apostles. And then even inside that core 12, there's the big three. Peter, James, John. We're going to look at them in future weeks. I would encourage you, though, to think of them. It's not just the big three. There's actually a big four. There's an inner circle of the disciples that I would actually include Andrew in there. I would add him to the big four. He just doesn't get a whole lot of press. Why? Well, next week, we're going to look at his brother, Peter. Peter is absolutely a type A personality. Andrew probably spent much of his life in the shadow of his big brother, maybe. I think he's the kid brother. We're not sure, actually, of Peter. Historians are divided on who was the big brother, who was the little brother between Peter and Andrew. About half will say... uh, Half of Christian tradition says, oh, he's the little brother. Half would say he's the big brother. It's interesting when you look at their dynamic, even when you look at their wiring, their personality profiles that we see a glimpse of in the New Testament. Let's play with that just a little bit, shall we? I'm curious, how many of you, how many of you are the firstborn in your family of origin? Let me see your hands. Big brothers, big sisters, I'm one of those. I'm the oldest of four. There is all kinds of things that go into being the firstborn. Firstborns tend to bask in their parents' presence. We, had, uh, we have five kids, and when our firstborn was first introduced to our family, for several years, he was the only grandchild on both sides, and it amazed me. Christmas time especially, we'd get together, and we'd all just kind of sit in a circle, and we'd watch Micah. And sometimes in the middle of that, I would think, this is shaping him in a big way for life. Like it's, we're all the audience and he's just kind of holding court. That has to shape future life for him. It did for me and the rest of you firstborns, it probably did for you as well. This is why a lot of times we acted like many adults. These firstborns are often prone to be diligent, wanting to excel at everything they do. As the leader of the pack, firstborns often tend to, here's a list of firstborn tendencies, tend to be reliable, tend to be conscientious, tend to be structured, cautious, controlling achievers. Some of you are thinking about your kids right now and you're saying, yes, yes, no, yes, maybe, not sure I see that quite yet. Well, these are often times the tendencies of your firstborn kids. How about, how many of you are the middle child? We've forgotten you, right? We don't even remember. That's right. Middle children, we see you. Here at Venture, we seek Jesus. We see you. You're seen. You're recognized. You're valued for exactly who you are. In general, middle kids tend to possess the following birth order personality traits. This is interesting. People pleasers, somewhat rebellious. Sometimes they thrive on friendships, Large social circles. Oftentimes they're a peacemaker, and you see that in the family dynamic, don't you? The firstborn doing his thing, the baby. We're going to get to the babies here in just a minute. And the, the middle child, they're the peacemaker in the middle, making things happen. The world is probably run in a lot of ways by middle kids. I did a trip this past week. Uh, my first boss passed away. And my th- my two, I have two brothers. I'm the oldest of three boys. We have a sister as well. The three boys, all of us worked on a hog farm. My boss died last week. We went back for the visitation. And as we traveled over and as we traveled back, the three boys together, 
I kept thinking about this. It was fresh on my mind, the study of how birth order affects family dynamics. How about the babies, the babies of the family? Let me see your hands. The youngest, yep, we see you for sure. You're the life of the party. Youngest children tend to be the most free-spirited due to their parents' increasing, can I say, laziness? As a dad of five kids, less a fair attitude towards um, parenting. You know, by the time we get to the third, fourth, fifth kid, we're tired. As a result, the baby of the family tends to have the following birth order tendencies. Fun-loving, uncomplicated, maybe manipulative, outgoing, attention-seeking, maybe self-centered sometimes. We don't know where Andrew fit in the birth order, but we kind of wonder, based on what we see in Scripture, he might not have been the oldest. He might have been the middle child. He might have been that one that felt a little bit forgotten. But he was responsible for introducing his dominant brother, Peter, to Jesus. His eagerness to follow Jesus combined with his zeal for introducing others to him, well, this describes exactly who Andrew was and probably some pretty important lessons that we can learn from him today. I was thinking about sibling rivalry as I was putting this message together, and I was remembering a moment around the Thanksgiving dinner table. I had my father-in-law there and his sister, Dawn's aunt. They're in their 70s now. And there was this moment of just kind of fun and levity. There was sibling rivalry, some teasing going on there. They were describing, she was describing a moment or maybe a series of moments. She's in her 70s now, back when she was probably still wearing piggy tails. She was describing that moment when the big brother would have her pinned down. Some of you, you're flashing back on this right now. And she'd do that trick that big brothers are good at where they would spit, suck the spit back up. We're eating Thanksgiving dinner, right? And she's describing this. I had a reaction similar to what you just had right there. But I also giggled. These things are timeless. I bet that Andrew and Peter had some moments like that that they could tell around the dinner table themselves. Because when you're the, the younger brother, following, following is hard work. Here's what we know about Andrew. Andrew broke a sweat. Metaphorically, Andrew broke a sweat. He was the sweaty apostle. I'm not talking about this guy. I'm not talking about this kind of sweat. I'm talking about hard work. Why? Because Andrew sweated the small stuff. We see this in his following style. We see this in his leadership styles. He was actually an early follower of a leader turned follower. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, this early leader in the New Testament who yields his leadership to followership behind Jesus. Actually, this typifies his leadership style, which is strong following. John chapter 3, verse 30, John says this, he must become greater. Jesus must become greater. I, John is saying, I must become less. I'm going to lower my leadership acumen so that his can increase because that's really what's important of life. And by the way, Andrew was this early disciple of John. He literally became a first follower of Jesus 
as he's following John. We find this recorded for us in the New Testament. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 1. I'm on page 1063 if you want to grab one of those Bibles that's underneath the seat back in front of you. Page 1063, John chapter 1, verse 35. Check it out. The day John, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. This is not, this is confusing because of the similar names here. This is not the gospel writer John here. However, he inserts himself in the story we're going to see here in just a minute. The next day, John, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. So he's there. He's got a group of disciples, followers, who are following the message that he's coaching, that he's teaching, that he's leading. When he saw Jesus passing by, John said, look, the Lamb of God. This is somebody worth following right here. His disciples hear him say it. When the two disciples heard him say this, what did they do? They're going this way following John. They about face. They follow Jesus. So interesting. Keep reading. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? It's an honest question, isn't it? And they gave him kind of an honest answer. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, we've just left John. We, we think we're going to follow you. Where are you staying? Which is a not so subtle way of saying, hey, can we come with you wherever you're hanging out? Can we actually, would you invite us into your house? This rented home probably that you're staying at. Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, before we go any further, this is interesting here. John, the writer of the gospel story here, he's clearly inserting himself into this story. Who else would know the exact time that they were there? Four in the afternoon, he said. So we've got John as one of these early followers of John the Baptist, now following Jesus. The other one reveals himself here in just a minute, Andrew. Let's keep reading. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So you've got Andrew and you've got John. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon. We know him as Peter. And tell him we've found the Messiah, that is the Christ. This person, this, this Messiah that has been prophesied for hundreds of years now. He immediately runs to Peter and says, we found him. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. There's a whole lot packed in that story. I want to unpack that with the rest of the time that we have together today. Almost everything that Scripture tells us about Andrew shows that he had the right heart for effective ministry in the background. He was a great first follower. There's a lot that we can learn from him. He comes to the forefront just a few times in Scripture, and each time there's something that we can learn about him. I've got three specific things that I want to share with you about Andrew that I think we can walk into our lives today as first followers. Each of them involve breaking a sweat. Andrew. Andrew broke a sweat chasing individual people. If you're taking notes today, that's probably something you're going to want to write down. He broke a sweat chasing individual people. This is a good way to articulate this. This first follower was one aware. 
If you've been at Venture for any amount of time, this past fall we did a series, a spiritual growth journey. We, taught, we called it One. And we challenged each one of us that calls Venture our home to be one aware, to be investing in a one in our life. Even so much so that at the end of that series, many of us who were here that day, we wrote some initials on a light bulb. And we screwed it in the light bulb wall out here that's in the lobby right now as a declaration of, hey, listen, we're serious about this. We want to be one aware. We want to have our eyes open to people who are in the world around us who don't know Jesus yet. Andrew was known for bringing individuals, not crowds, but individuals to Jesus. Andrew actually had a one. You just saw that in Scripture. As I was studying for this message, it was like my eyes went open. I was looking for one kind of things in my Bible because we've been studying it together as a church, and it was so interesting for me to see that Andrew had a one. The first thing that he did, let's look at the text again. He found his own brother Simon, and he said to him, we found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. The good news was too good for Andrew to keep to himself. So Andrew went and he found the one person in the world whom he most loved, whom he most wanted to know Jesus, and he led him to Jesus. He was one aware. Let's look at Andrew's resume, shall we? That story puts him in your New Testament as the very first local missionary. The very first person with one awareness that goes to somebody that does not yet know Jesus right there in his own home, and he says, hey, come with me. I know the truth. Join me as I follow him. He was the first local ministry, but check this out, or missionary. He was also the first foreign missionary. He was the first person that reached across cultural or socioeconomic boundaries and brought others who didn't know Jesus yet to him. There's a group of people that are described in your New Testament simply as Greeks. In John chapter 12, verse 20, check this out. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida. We're going to look at Philip in a few weeks in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip, would you take us to him? Philip went to tell Andrew, isn't that interesting? He didn't go straight to Jesus, but he took this request to Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. It's significant that these men approached Philip, but Philip took them to Andrew and let Andrew introduce them to the master. Why in the world didn't Philip just take them to Jesus himself? Well, perhaps he was naturally timid. Maybe he wasn't confident enough in his own relationship with Christ. Or maybe Philip just got flustered and confused about the proper protocol. Or is it possible that Philip wasn't sure that Jesus wouldn't want to see them? He maybe had a Jewish-centric view of the world. In any case, Philip knew that Andrew would introduce individuals to Christ. Andrew is wired for this. He had one awareness. The most effective and important aspect of evangelism, I would argue, takes place on an individual level, a personal level. Most people don't come to Christ as an immediate response to a sermon that they hear in a crowd setting. They come to Christ because of the influence of an individual. People like Andrew. People like you. People like me. 
Both Andrew and Peter had evangelistic hearts, but their methods were drastically different. Peter preached at Pentecost. 3,000 people were added to the church. Nothing in Scripture ever indicates that Andrew preached to a large crowd or that he stirred masses of people. But remember, who brought Peter to Jesus? Andrew. This reminds me of a more recent story, recent like 100 years ago in Christian history story. Have you ever heard of D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody, an incredible leader in American evangelical movements? One of my favorite D.L. Moody quotes. He said this, if this world is going to be reached, I'm convinced that it must be done by men and women of average talent. Not the rock stars. But you and I, average people, even people like Andrew, even in his own story, there's a story of how this takes place. He was kind of a punk, young adult, running wild. There was a man who had had influence over his adolescence who was actually his Sunday school teacher. Let me show you how this worked. His name was Edward Kimball. You've probably never heard of him before. He was a quiet man, similar probably in his demeanor to Andrew, who we're studying. D.L. Moody became a powerful leader in the early church, or the the church here in America. Uh, About 100 years ago, he launched a Bible college. He launched a movement. He trained up all of these workers for Jesus. He preached to thousands. But he did not know Jesus until Edward Kimball chased him down. D.L. Moody was come into his Sunday school class, probably just to kind of mess around a little bit. And Edward Kimball actually sought him out at his job working at a shoe store. And I love what he said. He wrote about this later. He said, I decided to speak to Moody about Christ and about his soul. I started downtown to Holton's shoe store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to just go back uh, maybe during business hours. And then I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy that when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was, and when they learned, they might taunt Moody and ask if I was trying to make a, quote, good boy out of him. Self-doubt is coming in there, right? He's trying to overthink it and talk himself out of it. While I was pondering over it all, I passed the store without noticing it. Then when I found I'd gone by the door, I determined to make a dash for it and have it over at once. And he went in, and he approached D.L. Moody, and he told him about Jesus, And on the spot, the story goes, Dwight L. Moody gave his heart, gave his life, gave his soul to following Jesus. And his life was changed from that moment forward. And the downstream effects of that is he affected thousands, perhaps even millions of people behind him. There's somebody that came to Christ because of him. His name was F.B. Meyer. You've probably never heard of him. Maybe you've never heard of J. Wilbur Chapman, who his ministry influenced. Billy Sunday was a powerful preacher during that season of American church history. He came to Christ because of this gentleman's influence. Mordecai Ham was influenced by Billy Sunday. And Billy and Mordecai Ham is the one who told Billy Graham about Jesus. My life has been affected by Billy Graham. Some of my spiritual ancestors learned about Jesus deeper because of Billy Graham's preaching. The story, that timeline, it just keeps going forward. Can you picture yourself in that timeline? One disciple making another disciple. This is the way that Andrew usually seems to minister one-on-one. 
if we had a church filled with Andrews, we could reach the world for Jesus. Andrew broke a sweat chasing individual people. By the way, how are you doing right now as you seek to influence your one? You made a commitment back in, oh, October. You screwed a light bulb into the, 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 the display. Maybe you did that even after that day, and you've committed to that. And There's somebody that you're praying for. How are you doing with your one? Are you breaking a sweat? How's your resting heartbeat right now when you think about that person in your life? Does your heart beat faster for the, the same things that break God's heart? Does your heart beat faster when you think about people who are inside your sphere of influence Maybe their initials are out there on that wall, and you know that their eternity is not secure yet. Are you breaking a sweat, chasing them? Here's the other thing that Andrew broke a sweat doing. He broke a sweat using insignificant gifts. Why? Well, this first follower was one receptive. Not just aware, he was receptive some people see the big picture more clearly just because they appreciate the value of small things Andrew fits in this category. This comes through clearly in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. Andrew chased ones everywhere he went, even in a large crowd. In the story of the feeding of the 5,000, I'm in John chapter 6, verse 7 here. The, 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 the crowd is assembled, and Jesus is basically saying, listen, does anybody know where we can find some food to feed these people? He already had a plan in place. He just wanted his disciples to have some investment in this miracle, this process that happens. Philip, it's interesting his name shows up here again. We're going to study him in a few weeks. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. In other words, this is an overwhelming problem, dude. I don't know what we're going to do with this, but this problem, I'm glad that you're here to handle this because I've got no idea on how to do this. Then let's keep reading. Let's see what happens. Verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, this is who we're studying today. Again here, isn't it interesting? Even here in this story, he's identified as Simon Peter's brother. Here's his kid brother again, Andrew. He spoke up. There is a boy here with five small barley loaves. And two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? How did he know that? He wasn't just one aware. He was one receptive. Of course, he knew that five loaves and two fishes, that's going to be a hard thing to feed a whole crowd. But he also knew that no gift is insignificant in the hand of Jesus. And he made the connection. This boy with Jesus, let's just see what can happen. It reminds me of Luke chapter 21. Jesus is watching a scene taking place, people giving gifts. We see some insignificant gifts in this story. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And then he saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites, pennies. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all of those. Those who gave out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. In other words, a poor person who gives everything he or she has is given a greater gift than even the rich people who have given more out of their abundance. God's ability to use a gift is in no way hindered or enhanced by the size of that gift. Andrew 
He instinctively, in our story there, the feeding of the 5,000, he instinctively seemed to know that he wasn't wasting Jesus' time by bringing such a paltry gift. It wasn't the greatness of the gift that counted, but rather the greatness of the God to whom it was given. Andrew set the stage for an incredible miracle. Andrew broke a sweat. How else did he break a sweat? I'm glad you asked. He broke a sweat doing inconspicuous service. Here's how we would contextualize it. This first follower was one motivated. He wasn't just one aware. He wasn't just one receptive. He was also one motivated. Listen, some people don't play in the band unless they can hit the big drum, right? James and John had that tendency. We're going to look at them in future weeks. So did Peter, but not Andrew. He didn't seem to participate in the big debates. He was more concerned about bringing people to Jesus than about who got the credit or who was in charge. He had a little craving for honor. We don't hear him say anything unless it's related to bringing somebody to Jesus. Andrew is the very picture of those who labor quietly in humble places. I love the way the King James puts this in Ephesians chapter 6. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He wasn't an impressive pillar like Peter and James and John. He was He was humble. He was one of those rare people who was willing to take second place and seemed to be in the place of support. This is a lesson many Christians today would do well to learn because Scripture actually cautions against seeking roles of prominence. We're talking about this leadership following tension. The Bible says this in Mark chapter 9, Jesus taught his disciples, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. It takes a special kind of person to be a leader with a servant's heart. Andrew was like that. As far as we know, Andrew never preached to multitudes or founded a church. He never wrote an epistle. He isn't mentioned in the book of Acts or any of the epistles. Andrew is more of a silhouette than a portrait on the pages of of Scripture. But there's a word for this. The word is humility. And I don't know about you, but I respect a strong man with humility. Get this, the etymology of his name. Andrew's name literally means manly. I love that. That's a great reminder to me that humility is often where following becomes leading. I was reminded of this a couple of weeks ago. We have this uh, thing on our phone, the app that I've come to love and hate, the uh, text app. And, and uh, we have, uh, I'm sure you're a part of some of these as well, our staff team has a text string there. And, you know, it's, it's equal parts uh, encouragement. It's equal parts, hey, we've got an issue that needs uh, settled or solved or we need somebody to, to wade into this. And then it's also equal parts memes and just kind of silliness and just kind of fun-loving and just being kind of a little bit goofy. There was a moment a couple of weeks ago, by the way, I asked his permission to share this. Our own Tony Johnson uh, sent a text out. And we don't even need to get into the details of what the text was. It was kind of harmless. 
Honestly, I didn't really think much of it until a couple of days later, I noticed him. He was kind of systematically going from office to office, apologizing for that text. And he walked into my office, and he apologized for it, and I, I, I kind of reacted, well, thanks, but well, you, I'm not sure you have to apologize for it, but oh my goodness, does it display your heart that you would even think of that? And that you're in here right now, and I heard you were walking up and down the halls doing the same thing. Man, I love your heart of humility. This is where following becomes leading. Man, I respect that. He sweated the small stuff. Can I ask you this as we seek to land the plane today with this message, this worship service? Just to do a little bit of a gut check. Are you sweating the small stuff? When you look at the life of Andrew, his leadership, are you following well in the ways that he's mentoring us? Let me ask you some specific questions. Are you breaking a sweat chasing individual people? Do you see the ones? Do you see individual people and are you breaking a sweat chasing them like Andrew did? He brought his brother, the very first one that's mentioned in the New Testament, brought him to Jesus. Are you doing that? Are you sweating the small stuff in that area of your life? Are you breaking a sweat using insignificant gifts? Listen, don't think of what you have as insignificant. God could use it. He will use it in amazing ways. Are you calling out seemingly insignificant gifts out of others as well? Are you, do you have this as a radar that you're even looking for this? Are you breaking a sweat in that area of your life? How about this? Are you breaking a sweat doing inconspicuous service? Small acts of kindness, they're not random. They're very intentional. Even behind the scenes, you do that as an act of worship to invest for your God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 puts it this way. This is the caution. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus. So don't get too big for your britches. Be a first follower. We follow first. We lead second. Why? Because leadership is lauded. Following is underrated, but following is exactly what you're called to do, especially, especially in the small stuff. I want to wrap this up by sharing with you the, the rest of the story, so to speak. Christian tradition tells us that Andrew... He modeled this well, not just in his life, but even at the very end. Andrew was ultimately crucified in Achaia, an ancient name for southern Greece near Athens, modern day. One account says that he led the wife of a provincial Roman uh, governor to Christ, and this infuriated her husband. He, this leader, demanded that his wife recant her devotion to Jesus, and she refused. So the governor had Andrew crucified. By the governor's orders, he was crucified, lashing him to a cross rather than nailing him to a cross. Why? To provoke and to prolong his suffering. 
By most accounts, he hung on that cross for two days. And while he hung on that cross, guess what he was doing? He was talking to people who walked past him and challenging them to turn to Christ for salvation. After a lifetime of ministry in the shadow of his more famous brother and in the, in the service of his Lord, he met a similar fate as theirs. Peter was crucified on a cross. Jesus, of course, was crucified on a cross. Was Andrew slighted? No. He was privileged. He was the first to hear that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He was the first to follow Christ. Andrew, his humble following that became leading, is an incredible model for us to follow as well. Andrew's legacy is the example that he left to show us that in effective ministry, it's often the little things that count, the individual people, the insignificant gifts, the inconspicuous service. Why? Because God used such things. He chose the foolish things we just read of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Would you stand up with me? I want to send us out of here today with an action step to have our eyes open to be looking for the small things and to sweat the small stuff. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the application we can pull even from Scripture to be first followers. We follow first, we lead second. In acts of humility, give us courage to sweat the small stuff. Give us courage to see, the eyes to see the small stuff even this week. And it's in your name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.